0: Well, as we uh, last met two months ago, almost to the day, two months ago, I think about 62 days, um, we were beginning to begin a, well, kind of a spring break kind of little thing on exegesis and hermeneutics. I call it hermagesis, but uh, we uh, were going to. Uh, do that for a little while before resuming our study in the Psalms. And it's ended up now that we're probably going to uh, do this study a little bit through the summer, probably from now to the beginning of August. And then we'll pick up again on the the uh, study of the psalm, Psalms that we've been doing. Um, and I really want to uh, stress that most of what you're going to hear isn't new but it's basic and it's to remind us, uh, at least for me, I tend to, when I go off to study scripture, uh, if I don't remind myself of the rules and of the, the way we need to carefully study and carefully read scripture, it's very easy to get sloppy in our study of scripture. Now, I'm not talking about our devotional reading of scripture where we We read uh, a, a passage devotionally and we're looking for application or for comfort or something like this. I'm actually talking about when we study the scripture to understand more about the theology, about who God is and who Jesus is. And sometimes we hear that. I don't need theology. I just need to know Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? And as soon as you start asking that question, you're back in theology. And. In that, um, there there are, like in every other study or endeavor we do in life, there are ways of doing it properly, and there are ways of not doing it properly. And uh, so hopefully we will learn or relearn, uh, reinforce those uh, good habits on studying Scripture. And so I've entitled this, um, I was halfway kidding, calling it Hermes Jesus. Uh, we really want to make this a practical exegesis uh, class to where we can practice reading scripture and interpreting properly and drawing the, the correct inferences and so forth. So to do that, um, and a lot of what we're going to be doing comes out of this book by R.C. Sproul calling, called Knowing Scripture. Um, also, This book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, and this is by Gordon Fee. This one's a little bit older book. uh, Another great book. Um, Exegetical Fallacies, which is D.A. Carson. There are things in here that you probably will find less than interesting. Uh, Kind of boring, actually, if you want to know the truth, but very helpful, uh, more of a reference. And then Lewis Burkhoff's Principles of Biblical Interpretation, which is uh, another excellent little Book deceptively small. Uh, in fact, all of these books are deceptively small. Uh, there's more in them than you might might think. So, um, I would encourage you, if you want to uh, have those references handy, you can. And I think you can get all those at Amazon. I know you can get them all at Ligonier, so forth. So, and I'll give you some other um, helpful reference tools that you can use as we go through, because uh, if we're not, as uh, Zach have gone to seminary and studied languages and that kind of thing, there are tools, and we will talk about those tools that can help us as lay people study the scripture and make it easier to do the hard stuff. So uh, let's go ahead and, and dive into that, and we're going to uh, look at Essentially, what is exegesis? What is hermeneutics? Now, there are some schools of thought that talk to us and they'll say, well, basically they're the same thing. Well, actually, basically they're not the same thing. Uh, It's kind of like saying the computer program and the data run that you get from the computer as you run that program are the same thing. Well, obviously, we know that's not true. Uh, one is, are the guidelines and the ways that that data gets generated and interpreted. okay? And the other is what we're looking at, the data itself. So if you want to think about, don't carry that analogy too far, but uh, about hermeneutics and exegesis in that fashion. Exegesis is the doing or the instantiation of the hermeneutic. Uh, why is it called hermeneutic and exegesis from the Greek? To take out of, or to to bring out of exegesis, to bring it out of the scripture. What's there? Um, hermeneutic is a little bit different in that it's actually more based in the mythology of uh, Greeks and Rome. Hermes was the god of what? Does anybody remember what Hermes was the god of? It was it war? No, uh, actually, has to do with uh, uh, herme- that, that's why hermeneutics is called hermeneutics. It was the interpreter of the gods. He basically said, "This is what the, the 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 text means." In other words, this is how we know what the text means. So that's why it's kind of easy to confuse those two things. But uh, we'll talk about what the differences are as we go along. Um, Biblical interpretation and private interpretation are something that are basic to Protestant uh, teaching. And I say that Protestant teaching more so now in Roman Catholicism as well since Vatican II, which was in 1962, uh, where the mass uh, began to be done in English. And I don't know how many of you remember, but I remember friends into the 60s were still railing against... You know, it was almost sacrilegious that the mass was now done in whatever the local language was rather than in Latin. They were all upset. Of course, they didn't speak Latin, so I'm not sure why they were so upset about it. But anyway, but the Protestant reformers of the 16th century were very clear. And in fact... um, There are some quotes uh, by Martin Luther that make it very clear that he believed that private interpretation of the scripture was an essential part of being a regenerated believer in Jesus Christ, that being able to read the scripture and understand it were essential And that was radical in the 16th century. And you probably heard the word perspicuity. Well, that basically means that, and the reformers were clear on this, that perspicuity is that Scripture is, with a person who is literate, understandable. In other words, any person who can read, can look at the scripture, read the scripture, and understand the basic message that's in the scripture. That's perspicuity. Big word for a very understandable, small, giant topic. Okay. (laughs) What does that mean? Now, some people will take that and say, well, that basically means that I can interpret the scripture any way I want to and that my interpretation is just as good as your interpretation. That's kind of a cultural thing, particularly in our day. But that's not what the Reformers meant. They meant that the individual had the right and the responsibility of rightly and correctly interpreting Scripture for themselves. Not that they could, as Luther said, turn the the scripture or the Bible, into a wax nose. In other words, shape it any way they wanted to shape it. Okay. Now, private interpretation is something that we should take very seriously when we use the Bible both devotionally and for study. And we need to be able to clearly define why we think private interpretation is one necessary. In other words, you know, the, the church went along just happy for, you know, about 1,400 years without private interpretation, right? Nobody wants to argue with that. Huh? <laughs> okay. Uh, the reason for the Reformation was things were basically out of control. Okay. And a big part of that was the church was not teaching, number one, that scripture was the, the final authority, but the church was the final authority. They were teaching that, yes, the scripture was a, an authority, and the church controlled scripture. And the church, therefore, was the... Oops. message. should have turned that off. Sorry. Mark probably. (laughs) (laughs) Brian. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, Now I lost my mind. Okay. You're in a safe crowd here, Michael, with the the notion that we're not challenging the dirtiness. (laughs) Of my (laughs) ringtone? Um. R.C. Sproul, in Knowing Scripture, said this. He said, with the right of private interpretation comes the sober responsibility of accurate interpretation. Private interpretation gives license to interpret, but not to distort. And that's exactly what the Catholic Church had done through what they considered to be the magistrate of the Church and the overarching Authority of the church to regulate scripture. Uh, in other words, um, this is why Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms in 1521, I think 1521, um, essentially said, you know, Un- unless you can show me what you're saying about what I'm saying is wrong according to scripture, then I can't. Say anything else. Okay? Which, again, was radical because they held that the councils of the church, the ecumenical councils like Nicaea, like Chalcedon, like Ephesus, those councils of the church, which are good, which are great, had purpose, but they were not authoritative in the sense that Scripture is authoritative. We would, we would make the caveat insofar as they agree with Scripture. And the Catholic Church said, the church makes that decision. The church interprets Scripture for the people. Basically, they were saying the people aren't smart enough to figure out what the Scripture says. Okay, there were two reasons for that. One, historically, people were illiterate. I mean, at the time of Christ, maybe 10 to 12 percent of people could actually read. And about half that could actually write. And if out of those, a large percentage of those were Jews in the empire, okay, probably 25 to 30 percent they're thinking of Jews in the Roman empire would make up that little block that could read and write. Why? Because they believed it was important to be able to understand the scripture as it was read. And, I was just say, go ahead. Wasn't it, weren't a lot of Jews so fairly good? I mean, compared, comparatively to. Comparatively yes, comparatively, yes. Even that was one of the things that Alexander the Great, when he came into Palestine, was absolutely astounded at. That common Jewish men were able to. Read and write, um he was fascinated with it. That's one of the reasons he exempted uh Israel from having to uh pay tribute to the gods of Greece I mean they threw a fit and you know, but he was he did not challenge at a certain point saying, you know. He was just fascinated with the whole Hebrew culture. And so he essentially exempted them from having to to do anything that would violate. they still had to pay taxes, but they weren't having to violate their their monotheism, okay? Um, that essentially became a sore point as well with the Romans. And the Romans early on, Julius Caesar, for example, uh, and even up through into the uh, into the Empire, uh, I think as late as uh, Marcus Aurelius uh, exempted the Jews. But by that time, there were a lot of what we would call Zionist uh, agitators who were were basically wanting free of Rome completely. And that's what ended up. If you've ever read Josephus, there's a he he wrote um, Antiquities of the Jews uh, and several other things. But uh, he also wrote Wars of the Jews. And the Second War of the Jews uh, during that time, 163 to 168, I think it was, A.D., uh, was the final war. uh, and, And that was kind of the end of Judaism as, as was known in the ancient world. So what we see today is uh, uh, wouldn't be recognized by, by uh, the, the uh, Judaism of the time of Christ. So uh, much different. Uh, but Jews believed that if you could read and write the, the common person Uh, whenever they gathered together for um, what eventually became uh, known on the Sabbath or for other feast days or for community reasons, um, would bring together into a synagogue. Uh, By this time, there was such a thing as a synagogue. A synagogue isn't an ancient Jewish thing it was very relatively within a couple of 300 years new to it came around during the Greek period uh, uh, primarily when the Jews were dispersed they would create a community center essentially facing Jerusalem that was a uh, school it was kind of like in the in the Wild West here you know you had a building that was the church the school the the magistrate Center you know uh, court, room was held, a court was held there, all that kind of stuff. It was the one building. Um, that was kind of it for the Jews as well, the synagogue. So it was a place of worship. It was also a place of community. And you would have 10 men in the community, which would essentially, we would say that would constitute a quorum. Uh, and there's several places in the New Testament. For instance, when you are looking at um, uh, the ten virgins, and so forth. And there, there's some real interesting parallels uh, in some of the parables about this ten, these ten people. Well, a lot of that alludes to this quorum of men who would be the overseers of the synagogue that you were uh, part of, and that was geographic, usually. And so... These guys would come, and it was called sitting in the seat of Moses, okay? And they would essentially come up and sit facing the, the men and women who were there, um, primarily men at, at the time of Christ. And then they would go to the closet, uh, essentially, which they still they have that today if you've been in a synagogue, and they will bring this scroll out. And it would be basically a a continuing reading of the scripture. Well, these men who were in the synagogue were expected to be able to read the scripture. So this is why most men, at least, and many women were also were educated to be able to read and write. So at the time of Christ you had a large number of Jews, particularly Jewish men, who were able to read and write. That's how they got there. So this idea of perspicuity was not brand new to the Reformation. By the time you get to the Reformation, you have about twelve, 1,400 years where this idea was lost to history, that the people of God should be educated, in other words, and that and people who were ministering to the people of God should be even better educated. When, when did actually uh, the, the church the time, especially in the first millennium, when did it actually divert from, uh, I should say divert towards uh, papal authority as far as... That's a good question. Um, we would know... What became known as bishops, we would have known them as pastors, okay? Like uh, people like R.C. Sproul and and Tim Keller and um, uh, Mark uh, Deaver and some of those guys in large areas that may be pastors over multiple locations. They simply would have been a local pastor that had large congregations, Okay, but by about after after Nicaea and once the uh, empire was consolidated and there was less persecution and Constantine was was basically giving a a openness to Christianity in an empire where the emperor himself was a believer. At that point, it became institutionalized where you had, rather than a a, um, hierarchy that was God uh, and then Christ headed the church and then you had uh, essentially teaching and ruling elders uh, in a church, now you had this hierarchy where you had the emperor or i'm sorry the uh, uh legate of rome uh or the the bishop of rome was now because it was such a a powerful the capital of the empire the emperor was there he was the the pastor to the emperor now you have rome being the top and so now this pastor is ultimately father to the rest of the bishops who now Alexandria, uh, Damascus, um, uh, Jerusalem. You had all of these places, Tunis, all of these places with huge churches. Because remember thousands, hundreds of thousands of people came into these churches during the times of persecution Uh, from about 80 A.D. to about 300 A.D., uh, about well, about 260 A.D., uh, under persecution off and on, okay? And they're coming in, but most of the people that were coming in were slaves and people on the very low side of the economic scale and on the cultural scale. So within the church, you actually had a lower literacy rate than you did in the general culture, okay? So, by 300, now you have all of these essentially illiterate Christians, but you have very educated bishops, and the Bishop of Rome was what would ultimately become the Pope, okay? Okay? And uh, by about 500 AD, about the time of Gregory, you end up with a transition from simply the church being the the body of Christ uh, with its head being Christ in and in a, a plurality of elders. Now you have this hierarchy of, quote, educated pastors in this hierarchy where the lead pastor uh, can essentially communicate truth from the chair. OK, and it, it's very interesting because this idea of the chair was borrowed directly from the Jewish synagogue. OK, it comes, I mean, straight in, straight in. So the pope, when he speaks ex cathedra from the chair, that's law that is on par or above Scripture now. So, if he interprets something, that's the way it is. That's the way it's taught by the church, the rest of the bishops, and everybody. Okay, That's a lot of control, and that's a lot of power to give up. And so, by the time of the Reformation, now, everything's kind of turned upside down. Most, all of the bishops and the Pope himself were not well-educated. They were very astute politically and had a lot of power and a lot of wealth, but they were not well-educated. In fact, most most monks of the time that were actually ministering to the people, the friars that were outside of the monastery, could not read or write. So now you have a clergy that's completely ignorant. And the Bible is literally chained to the pulpit. If the church that you were in was large enough and had a had a Bible at all. It was chained at the pulpit. Okay? About a hundred years from uh about the time of, of John Huss and Tyndale, these guys when things were just starting to move toward a reformation, uh Essentially, Europe was in this huge feudal system that was, everybody was fighting with everybody and basically making alliances with everybody. And so, if you wanted power and you had money, buy a bishopry, become a bishop. You know, that, that's basically how it was done. And the immorality that was happening in Rome by the time of Luther, a hundred years later, was horrible. I mean, he he nearly left the church when he went to Rome at, at what he saw there. It was terrible. You can read about that in in the history of of Martin Luther's uh, if you want to read his biographies. But this is. The primary reason all of these things cascading into the Reformation was one of the reasons why this concerted voice is coming from the Magisterial Reformers. They could maybe disagree on interpretation of the Lord's Supper, on baptism, you know, these things. But one thing they were very together and clear on was the perspicuity of Scripture. That people should be educated and should be allowed to read the scripture and interpret scripture rightly for themselves. That's perspicuity. That's the doctrine of perspicuity. Not that that you can basically interpret it any way you want to, uh, but we have the right and the responsibility as believers to interpret scripture according to the Word of God. And a corollary to that is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Okay? So, during the Reformation, we have what are called the five solas or the five alones. Okay? Does anybody know what those are? Sola Scriptura. Sola, scriptura. sola Fide. Sola Fide. Sola. Sola. Faith alone. Sola Gloria. Yeah. Sola Gracia. Sola, sola Gracia. Mm-hmm. And sola, sola dea Gloria. gloria. Glor- the uh, glory of God alone. And what's the fifth one? Solus Christus. Solus Christus. Christ alone. Okay. So those are the five solas. Uh, scripture alone, or sola scriptura, was the base principle upon the teaching of everything else. In other words, the church is great, but the church does not hold sway over the word of God. Okay, now we're going to take that back in a different context later, but uh, uh, this is at the time of the Reformation, they were very clear it's Scripture alone. It's not Scripture and the church, it's not Scripture and the councils, it's not Scripture and, you know, Peter Lawford, it's not Scripture and, you know, uh, Thomas Aquinas, okay. It's scripture alone is the final authority for the believer. And it's the only thing that can bind the conscience. Okay. And and that is the basis for this whole idea of why should we be interested in exegesis and hermeneutics? Period. Okay. That is a, a basic reformation doctrine. So, Luther's priesthood of all believers um, isn't to essentially say, well, everybody's just, there's this, you know, leveling of everybody. There are, there's nobody, you know, uh, officiating above anybody else. That everybody just reads the scripture and whatever they come up with, that's what they, that's kind of the road they go down. That's not what he's saying. So he was talking about the priesthood of all believers essentially meant that because the Scripture alone binds the conscience, and because Christ alone uh, is, is head of the church, then within that context, there is a priesthood of all believers. In other words, I don't have to go to a hierarchy. Okay? Okay. This is how it would work in the days of of pre-Reformation, okay? Essentially, you were baptized at birth. At that birth, you were infused, okay, with grace. Grace is necessary. Today and yesterday in the Catholic Church. Okay, don't let people tell you, you know, the Catholics believe in works alone and we believe in grace alone. That's nonsense. They've always believed in grace, okay? But it's grace plus. It's not, okay, it's not solo gratia. It's, it's I don't know what it is. <laughs> it, it's a combination of grace plus something else. And that something else is when you are born And you are baptized, you are infused with grace. Slate's clean. You're you're there. You die, you go to heaven, right? Okay. But because of of original sin, which was taken care of at your baptism, okay, and because of sin that you will commit, um, which there are two types of, okay, there's mortal sin and there's venial sin. Venial sin's kind of, yeah, it's not that bad. Okay. Mortal sin is you go to hell. Okay. That's why it's called mortal sin, because your soul dies again. Okay. So you would think, well, I go, get re baptized, and we're good again, right? No, that's not the way it works. Okay. The second plank of justification. For those who have made shipwreck of their souls, and that comes right from Catholic doctrine, um, is, does anybody know what it is? Penance. Penance. Now, penance uh, requires outside help, a lot of it. Because that hierarchy we were talking about, you need to have someone now that you can go to and confess to, and they will tell you then what you need to do, penitently, to make up for that sin or sins that you have just committed. Okay? And now who would that be? That would be your local priest. Okay? There's a problem there, too. Okay? Because your local priest, you're hoping that your local priest is going to his bishop to confess his sins before he takes your confession to goes to his bishop and ultimately go. Okay. That's how that works. Okay. But in the whole of Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, there is this thing called the treasury of merit. Okay. And it's a, what you think, it's a treasury of merit. Imaginary, but still there, right? I shouldn't say imaginary. They don't believe it's imaginary, but but it has the excess works calculated of Christ that weren't used up by the saints and those who came after, it, and of those who were made saints by the Church. Their good works, like Mother Teresa and and Thomas Aquinas and all these guys were saints. Well, not only did they do enough works to get themselves in with grace, but they did extra. That extra gets put in the treasury of merit. So when you sin, then you go to your confessor, your father confessor, and you confess your sin, and he says, okay, this is what you got to do. you got to say this many Hail Marys, this many Our Fathers, you've got to go give this much alms to the poor, you've got to do these things. Okay, that's the penance system. Once you've done that, you're good again. You're back in. Okay? Now, by the time of the Reformation, this had been extended to a system of what are called indulgences. Okay? Now, you've got to remember who these guys were. These guys are basically politicians that were running the church. I mean, some of them had theological training, but most of them were politically motivated and monetarily motivated. Not a lot changes, right? Uh, So this whole structure of Rome is Pope Pius XII, who was the pope at the time of Luther, is kind of in a bad situation. He's building this thing called St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City, or what would become Vatican City in Rome. And they're running out of money, if you can imagine that. They're running out of money because this thing is huge and it's expensive. And he's been paying out all kinds of money and, and not taking in enough, particularly from places like Germany, who are kind of renegades when it comes to politics and so there's not enough money coming in to buy bishopries and other things. So you end up with a deficit, but they've got an idea. Okay? 200 years before this, there was this idea that came up of what do we do with the people who died in a state of, called limbo, uh where essentially they have to spend time in purgatory, this other place, but not quite hell, but it's not heaven either. It's where you can go and basically work to get to heaven, okay? For a long time, like millions of years and stuff. Okay. But what if we sold indulgences which would allow those people in purgatory to get out. Okay? So, they would have these pieces of paper. Remember, people can't read and write. So they would have these pieces of paper which would say, okay, if you pay us this much money, it will take this many years off of whoever you want to put their name on this paper. In purgatory. Oh, my grandfather's in purgatory. Okay? Because he died with mortal sin. Okay, so, or various penal things. So, I would pay you 100,000 ducats or whatever it was, um, and with this indulgence, Grandpa can get out of purgatory and go to heaven. Bring belongs, Right? That's how the system worked. So, this whole idea was ludicrous, obviously, but that, that was the way things worked for hundreds of years. Uh, not the, the the indulgence part, but uh, the penance part. And so now, with uh, there was this fellow by the name of John Tetzel, and he was a real salesman. He was quite good. He was a bishop, but he was really good at advertising these indulgences and selling them. And he was very capable of going to these out of the way places like Germany. And selling indulgences to to get mom and dad, grandpa and grandma, whoever, brother, sisters, out of purgatory into heaven. And he'd go from town to town. Well, it, he was unscrupulous. He was terrible. I mean, he was immoral. He was, and he was doing, taking money from people. And it, it, he was a rogue. Okay really bad. Well, it, and everybody kind of knew it, but Rome was pretty happy because they're getting all this money to finish their basilica. And, about this same time, there's this monk, Martin Luther, who comes along and challenges this whole idea of indulgences. If you read the 95 pieces that was nailed to the Wittenberg church door, by the way, in Latin, so, not only could not, people not read their own language, they couldn't read Latin, so it wasn't like everybody's going, like, oh, what Luther said, right? Uh, so, if you look at those 95 theses translated into English, um, almost all of them deal with indulgences. You won't recognize, you're like, how did this start a reformation? <laughs> okay, but this whole idea ultimately came down to authority and the reliability of that authority. And that's where the idea of, of this movement, uh, in God's providence back to Scripture came from. God, God has really prepared, uh, the soil, if you will, of Europe for this Reformation. A hundred years earlier by people like, like John Huss and Wycliffe people translating the scripture into their own languages, okay? And they were persecuted, most of them were martyred for this, okay? At this point, now a hundred years later, you've also got a new technology, the internet, sort of, okay? You got this fellow by the name of Gutenberg, who about 80 years earlier, who ha- had invented movable type. So now you didn't have to copy everything down. You didn't have bunches of monks in the monastery copying everything down, right? Making copies. Um, now you have these guys who were really fast at making pages out of little blocks of wood at to begin with, and then the metal, tight. Um, they could put a page together really quick and run off thousands of copies of it and do the next page and run off thousands of copies of it. So you could make Bibles and other things very fast. Well, some students took the Latin, translated it into Low German, and took it to a Gutenberg press, printed it up, and distributed it all over Germany, (laughs) known to, to Luther, okay, at the time. Okay, so all of this is happening... Uh, right also when this idea of of, of feudalism is starting to wear thin in Germany, and right when the Catholic Church is ripe with immorality and corruption. Okay, so now Luther comes and essentially says, wait a minute, something's wrong here what I read in the Bible, and remember, Luther hadn't read the Bible for himself. He had his master's and was working, almost finishing his doctorate in theology and never opened a Bible. I mean, does that blow your mind or what? Never opened the Bible. And he starts reading the Bible. In fact, he starts translating the Bible. And he's like, wait a second. And he, and he gets to, to Romans 1 16 and 17, and he reads that and he's like, The righteousness of God, basically talking about imputation of the righteousness to God to His people. Okay? And Luther's like, Because I don't get it. How it would God, you know, we know God's righteous. This is the righteousness of God. We know God's righteous. Because I remember reading that. He went all the way back to Augustine. And he read this little weird thing that Augustine wrote that you wouldn't give a second thought to. And it says, It is not the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but God's righteousness imputed to his people. And Luther's like, Whoa! I don't have to spend six hours in confession every day and the rest of my life in penance? This is radical. And that interpretation of Scripture, his understanding of Scripture at that point, not necessarily simply the against indulgences plastered to the door of the Wittenberg Church, was what really fired the ultimate revolution of the Reformation. And that is probably where we're going to end today.